morning, guys. So it was a couple years ago, I happened to be reading through this book called The Life You've Always Wanted by a guy named John Orberg. And I came across this illustration that he had in, in the book. And he was explaining that as Christians, we often deal with this gap between who the Bible calls us to be and who, even who we would like to be and who we actually are. And he said, it's possible that we would fill that gap with our own self-effort, self-improvement, trying to become a better version of ourselves, or it's possible that we would fill that gap with self-condemnation. But here's what I know, is that we need a simple solution to filling that gap. We've tried our own efforts, We've tried beating ourselves up, and we know that hasn't worked. And what Peter's going to give us in this text is a really simple solution for living with this reality in our lives, this gap in our lives. And he basically says in this text that the good life is lived in the presence of God. The answer is found in simply learning to walk moment by moment with Jesus in the real world, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of joy, in the midst of all the different challenges that we face in our lives. So we're going to look at how to live the good life, how to suffer while doing good, and how to live in the presence of God. So first of all, how to live the good life. So we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, starting with verse We're just going to read through verse 12 to start here. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days... Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So essentially, Peter in this text is giving us a blueprint for how to live a life of of transformation. And the first thing he says is, in order to start on this journey of transformation, you have to know to start on the inside. So he lists all these different inner character qualities that are to mark us as Christian people. And so he says, we're to have unity of mind, we're to have sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So it's often our temptation in following after Jesus to start with our outward actions. He says, no, no, no. Start on the inside if you want to live the good life. And the interesting thing with this is I would say what sort of ties all of these together is this inner attitude of humility. How often are we trying to approach the Christian life with a sense of accomplishment or pride, and we start on this race of trying to walk with Jesus, 
And we quickly stumble and fall because the Christian life is not built on our own efforts. It starts with humility, brotherly love, tenderness, and compassion. Is your heart filled with compassion for those around you? Is there conflict that's happening with somebody else? Or are you filled with with a spirit of humility? Then Peter says, okay, we start focusing on these inward character qualities and what's going to be true of us as we focus inward on, on this tenderness and this compassion and this inner attitude of humility is that it's going to flow out in a certain way, into certain outward actions. Is this microphone driving you guys absolutely nuts right now? Am I, am I hearing something in it? Yeah? Should I switch to like a handheld? Would that be better? Yeah? Okay. All right. Hey, there we go. Now you guys can listen to me. Here we go. All right. Um, so, so basically, you've got, we're, we're focusing on these inward character qualities, and that moves us out into outward action. And what Peter says is that then our outward actions are characterized by responding a certain way to when other people insult us. And we've been going through this a lot throughout First uh, Peter. We've been talking about bosses, and we've been talking about spouses, and we've been talking uh, about the government. And basically, his word to us has been the same. If somebody reviles you, you don't revile at them in return. If somebody hits you, you don't hit them back. But what he's saying here is that that type of life actually flows out of your heart. So in other words, if you just try to go out and be the type of person that doesn't fight back when people hurt you, you are going to fail incredibly quickly. Because first, there has to be this inner transformation that happens within you, which leads to a deeper question. How does that inner transformation happen? Who transforms us? How do we get to be the type of people who go from pride to humility and go from conflict to unity of mind and go from being sort of competitive to being sympathetic, how does that end up happening in your life? And we've been seeing this again over and over again in First Peter, but he says it's about your relationship to God. So at the end of this text, he says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. So here's how I would piece all this together. He's saying, it starts with your relationship with God. Do you know him? Have you cultivated his presence in your life? An appetite for his approval? Do you care about the things that he cares about because you've simply spent time with him? Because as we spend time with him, then we're transformed into his image. We become like him. We become like Jesus. Humble. We have the type of attitude that that he has. And then that attitude results in treating other people around us a certain way. 
Okay, I was reminded of this yesterday. So some of you know Landon Quant, he comes to the church. Whenever I have one of those projects that I can't tackle on my own, that I don't have the tools for, I call Landon, okay? So got a hold of Landon, and Landon's helping me fix up my basement. And what you do when you do a construction project is the first thing you do is tear out everything you don't want. So we tore out everything that we didn't want, and then we put a bunch of stuff in that we did want. Okay, that's the basics. That's not the HGTV version, right? But that's basically what we did. It would be a disaster, guys, if I thought that I could do that on my own. Because I don't have the tools to do it. I don't have the expertise to do it. And frankly, I don't really like doing it. And so the only possible way that I can start a renovation project in my house is to get a hold of somebody else who can walk beside me and help me do it. And that's also true of your life in Christ. So often, guys, we can place our faith in Christ, begin walking with him, and then we forget this very basic reality that the good life, the life of transformation, only happens as we walk in relationship with Jesus, as we cultivate an appetite for his presence, and it's him doing the majority of the grunt work to transform us through his word, through the community, and through relationship with him. So my encouragement to you is, if you're feeling that gap in your life, come back to this very basic thing, this very basic question. Are you cultivating the presence of Jesus in your life? Are you spending time with him? Because if you don't spend time with him, everything else is going to start to fall apart. Okay, we might begin to think, okay, if I spend time with Jesus, then I'll cultivate these inner realities of humility and sympathy, and I'll begin to treat other people well, and then people will treat me with respect. Finally, I'll get the respect that I deserve. And Peter kind of goes a different direction that's a little bit surprising and begins to talk about how when we live this righteous life, we actually can expect to suffer for doing good. And so the next thing he talks about is how to suffer while doing good. So we're starting in verse 13 and reading through verse 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Okay, so here's the interesting question that he asked, kind of a perplexing question in the middle of the book of First Peter. He asked the question, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And the answer of the book of First Peter is, Everyone. Everyone's there to harm you. The government, your boss, your spouse, people in the church, and people outside of the church. 
everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so he's saying everybody's going to be there to harm you except for the very person whose approval you ought to be seeking. So here's what he draws us in with. He says, okay, even if you suffer for doing righteousness sake, you will be blessed. In other words, when you run into problems because you're doing good, people begin to treat you differently at work. Your spouse begins to treat you differently. People begin to actually look at your good behavior and they begin to think, yeah, I don't really want anything to do with this person. They're kind of a goody two-shoes. I'm going to move on. He's saying you pursue this life of godliness believing that it is what will make you happy. That's basically what this word blessed means. He's saying you will be blessed. And so what should our life look like as we live this righteous or this good life in front of the people around us? He says we should have no fear, that we should live with a good conscience, that we should be prepared to defend our hope, and that we should be gentle and respectable. We should live this type of life that is at peace. The type of life that's not insulting others, but also I don't think it's a type of life that's, that's really uh, zealous in a negative sense. It's not loud and proud about Jesus. It has this quiet confidence and trust in Jesus that actually begins to make the people around us ask this question, what is the source of your hope? Why are you living differently than I'm living. I think that the sort of general thrust just in, the, in, in normal life for Christians, for those who aren't like out on the street preaching and, and doing those type of things, kind of the general thrust is not to take a passive approach to evangelism in your workplace or in, your, uh, in the environment that you find yourself in, but it's to take a gentle approach to evangelism. You're living this quiet, respectable kind life. And people are looking at you and saying, there's something different about you. And they begin to ask, what is different about you? Now, the question is, how do you get that kind of confidence? And again, Peter goes back to this basic notion of cultivating the presence of God in our lives. He says it a little bit differently, takes it at a little bit different angle in this text. He says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Here's what he's saying. Everything else and everyone else in life, in comparison to Jesus, is unimportant. See, the reason that you are afraid to stand up for Jesus in a, respectful in a respectful way in the environment that you're in is because you're more concerned about the people's approval in your life than you are of Jesus' approval. And so there's basically two different ways that you can go, okay? 
you can basically be really bold with your faith, but be kind of a jerk. You can become really zealous, right? And you can start telling everybody about Jesus, but your behavior sort of cancels that out. And the other option is you can live a really good life and and follow the commands in this text to be gentle and kind and respectful, and you can neglect being bold. And what Peter says is the solution, whether you tend to be a more timid person or a more outwardly zealous person, is the same. It's to cultivate this presence of Jesus in your life. It's to regard him as set apart. It's to make your relationship with him the most important thing in your life. Now, I wish that I could tell you there's just there's a one-step process to making Jesus the most important person in your life, but I don't think it's that simple. I think it involves, yeah, time in the word and time in community and time in prayer, but for me, I know one of the most impactful things for Jesus to continue to become set apart in my life is my own personal suffering. Okay, so it was just um, a couple weeks ago that we celebrated my son Jude's one-year heaven birthday. So, you know, he died on July 11th of last year at five months old after uh, battling this congenital heart defect, and we had this, this service around his grave. And I'm standing there, and, and honestly, there's, there's a million thoughts going through my mind as we have sort of this memorial service. And, and I just thought, you know what has probably changed most about my perspective is that in some sense, I just don't care what anyone thinks anymore. And here's what I mean by that. I think through that event, Jesus has been set apart as holy for me. I remember somebody saying very early on, after we found out that Jude was in a lot of trouble, they said, here's what you're gonna realize walking through this pain and this grief, is that no one else in your life can help you. No one can give you the words of comfort that you need. No one can can really empathize with you in the way that you would like them to. The only person who can actually help you is Jesus. I think that's part of what it means to set him apart as holy. You know, even if you haven't been through a grief like that, if you really think about it, Jesus is the only one who can really give you that approval that you're longing for. He's the only one whose presence really is fullness of joy. And maybe for some of you, it's going to take some stumbles in the wrong direction. It's going to take some going off the path a little bit to realize that Jesus' presence is really all that you need. And so here's, here's just a basic question. What is competing for first place in your life right now? What are you tempted to make the holy thing? Whose approval are you living for? Because I think that will get at the root of our lack of boldness and our lack of kindness in our relationships with others, particularly people who don't yet know Jesus. Okay, so we've been talking about this, kind of hinting at it, but I want to dive a little bit deeper 
uh, into this idea that the key to living the good life and suffering while doing good is God's presence. So, so we haven't gotten to the very basic question I think we need to answer before the end, end of this text, and that's how to live in the presence of God. Okay, we know that we're supposed to live in the presence of God, to cultivate his presence so that we have this inward humility and this outward boldness, this combination of gentleness and courage. But how do we live in God's presence? Peter gives a very simple answer, starting in verse 18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So here's basically what Peter's going to say in this text, that we don't access God's presence by being clean. We access God's presence by coming clean. Okay? There's a a massive difference between the two of them. So basically, what religion says is that the way that you cultivate the presence of God in your life is you go do a list of things, and you don't do other things. And by doing a list of things and not doing a list of things, you then earn your way into the presence of God. And there's sort of the opposite approach to that, which is you get really overwhelmed by the list of things and you're like, forget it. I'll never get into the presence of God. What's the point of even trying? I'm going to give up on this whole Christianity thing. But both of them have the same root. And that's that you're basing your relationship with God on a list. And what Peter says is the only basis for being in relationship with God is not something that you do, but it's something that's been done by Jesus. And he states it very clearly here, that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So in the first text that we read, if you remember right, in verse 12, it said, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So you might read that and you might think, okay, I'm gonna try to be righteous so I can get into the presence of God. But here's what the cross says. There's another way to access the presence of God, and that's by being unrighteous. It's to see these lists of things that we're called to do, and it's actually to feel this deep sense of, there is absolutely no way that I can do this. There's no way that I can be humble. There's no way that I can be sympathetic. I I know myself. I'm a total idiot when it comes to spiritual things. There's no way I can pull this off. And here's what Jesus says. I'll take your unrighteousness and I'll give you my righteousness. I'll take your failure and and, and I'll give you my success. I'll take on your sin on the cross and the punishment that you deserve and you get my obedience and my perfection. And he says, 
will you make that trade? And I think one possible reason that you might not take the trade is because you don't think you're good enough or you're so busy filling the gap with your own accomplishments or self-condemnation that you've never even thought that there could be another way. But here's what the scripture says right here. It says, this is how you access the presence of God, that he might bring us to God. In other words, we access the presence of God in the exact opposite way that we naturally think we access the presence of God. We access the presence of God by admitting on a moment-by-moment basis that we do not deserve to be in his presence and that the only basis on which we can enter his presence is the finished work of Christ. Whether you're, you're not a Christian or you've been a Christian for 50 years, the answer to cultivating the presence of God in your life is the same. It's not about you climbing a ladder up to heaven. The message of the gospel is that God climbed the ladder down. He became human. And so there's nothing that you have to do to access his presence all other than believe in Jesus. Isn't that great? Guys, we can access the presence of God. We can be in his presence right now. Just transfer your trust again from yourself, your own efforts, your own righteousness to Jesus. Boom, you're in the presence of God. Isn't that awesome? We cultivate the presence of God by going back to the most basic message of Christianity. I was reminded of this idea of gaining access where you don't deserve it. When I was thinking back to one of my favorite moments in life, when my uncle called my dad, I was in seventh grade, he called my dad, said he had an extra ticket to game three of the 1998 NBA Finals, and he wanted to know if I wanted to come with him to the game. So here I was, a lifelong Bulls fan, got invited to sit in the 19th row of the United Center and see Michael Jordan play basketball live in the NBA Finals. And here's what I was thinking while I was there. I don't deserve to be here. There's no way that I could pay for this ticket. The only reason that I have access to this event is because my uncle has a baller job and he's super generous. And so he invited me to come to the game. And while I was at the game, we got all the free food we wanted. So I remember getting this like huge waffle cone full of chocolate chip mint ice cream. And I was just so happy. I'm like, I'm watching Michael Jordan. I'm eating ice cream. This is the best day of my life. But if I had tried to walk to Chicago from Lafayette, Indiana, and tried to get my way into that game, there's no way I would have ever gotten into the game. It's only through my uncle that I got into the presence of Michael Jordan, and it's only through Jesus that you get into the presence of God. You trust somebody else to do it for you. Isn't that awesome? And do you know what begins to happen when we do that? It begins to produce in us humility and sympathy and boldness to share the gospel with those around us. It's when we cultivate this presence of God accessed through Jesus that actually these character qualities begin to take shape in our lives.
So really the application of the message is just come to Jesus. Return back to him. Come into the presence of God, not as a slave, but as his child. Okay. Normally, I would end the message right here. We would pray. We would sing. But I got to tackle some tough verses first. Okay. So this is sort of like the footnotes. All right, so some of you are gonna be tempted to check out, but we gotta answer some tough questions about this text. So the last question we're gonna ask is, how do we deal with texts that are really hard to understand? All right, and we're gonna read the rest of the passage and then we're gonna try to deal with it together. You guys ready? Okay, so verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So we're good, we feel like we understand that. And then we get into verse 19. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Okay, first question based on this text is what in the world do verses 19 and 20 mean? Okay, what does it mean that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey God when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Okay, there's three possible interpretations that I think are all good ideas. They all could be right, and it's possible that they're all wrong. That's how confusing this text has been to people. The first one is that Christ was preaching through Noah to those who were building the ark. So in other words, often in the Old Testament, the spirit of Jesus was speaking through people and some believe that based on verse 20, when it refers to the days of Noah and the ark, that this is talking about Jesus actually preaching in the Old Testament to the people who were rebelling against God and telling them basically to get on the ark, and to flee from God's wrath. So that's one possible interpretation. Possibility number two is that Christ was preaching his victory and judgment to the fallen angels. And the way that people get there is in verse 22, it emphasizes that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So the idea here is that after Jesus died on the cross, between his death and resurrection, that he basically went into hell and he told all the fallen angels, booyah, in your face, I won the victory on the cross, just so you guys know. That's kind of a fun interpretation. Kind of like that one. And number three, is that Christ was preaching to Old Testament saints who were liberated between his death and resurrection. And again, this is in reference to verse 20, 
Noah and the ark and all those things. So the idea here is that these people who refused to get on the ark that Noah spoke to and they refused to repent, that Jesus actually went to them between his death and resurrection and gave them a second opportunity to place their faith in him and be saved. Okay, so those are the three interpretations. Here's what I want you to notice about how to handle these tough texts. First principle is handle tough texts in their immediate context. In other words, you need to look for contextual clues around the verses that trouble you to give you insight into the interpretation of those particular verses. And the second thing is, don't land in a really firm place on your interpretation, okay? Land with humility. So any one of these three interpretations is a good, solid, orthodox, biblical position. But here's what we don't want to do. We don't want our whole Connection Group's ministry this week to spend our time arguing our position, right? And become like obsessed with this, like, oh, you're one of those guys who believe that he preached to Noah and, oh, I'm the fallen angels guy. I can't believe this. We can't hang out anymore because we disagree on this. Let's start a new denomination. We don't want to be those people, right? This is not in the big scope of biblical orthodoxy. This doesn't even get on the map, All right, so we want to approach this particular question with humility. We want to understand that good Bible-believing people fall in any one of these three positions. Okay, question number two about the text. That's question number one. Question number two is, in what sense does baptism save you? Okay, because the way that we would put it in our church is that we believe that baptism is the outward sign of an inward change. Is that consistent with what is being taught in this text? Let's look at this again, starting in verse 21. It says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So what can happen is people can immediately go to this text and they either get troubled in their faith or they start to move towards an unorthodox position because they get to these words, baptism now saves you, and they say, see, baptism saves you. All you have to do to get saved is get baptized. That's what he's teaching. But what's important here is, again, we go through these principles of interpreting difficult texts. And what we need to do is read this verse in its context. So here's the way that Peter clarifies that. The first thing he says is, not as a removal of dirt. So when he says that baptism saves you, he's not saying that the waters of baptism somehow magically save you. It's not about the water. Don't make a mistake. He's not saying there's something magical about the water. You get dunked, it saves you. He's saying something else. And the something else that he's saying is indicated by the word but. And he says, but 
It is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here's the way that I would put that. He's saying baptism saves you in the sense that it is an outward expression of a faith that you have in the resurrection. So what you're doing in baptism is you're declaring that you have placed your faith in Jesus and you're appealing for God to continue this process of changing you throughout your life. So baptism, in other words, is the evidence of our saving faith, not the ground of our faith. The ground of our faith is the resurrection of Jesus. And then he explains exactly what he means by the resurrection. And he says that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So this is what we believe. Jesus on the basis of his life, death, and resurrection, is now in heaven, having defeated Satan, sin, and death. And he offers us salvation. Not as something that we can earn through baptism or in any other way, but as something that we receive by faith. And so baptism saves you, in the sense that it's an outward sign that this inward change has taken place in your life. Okay? Here's what we want to do at Salt City. We want to take the Bible seriously. We want to put ourselves under its authority. We want to think well about it. And what it always leads us to is humility and worship of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the clear things in this text, and I thank you for the tough things in this text, because it really does cause us to not lean on our own understanding, but in all of our ways to acknowledge you. And we acknowledge that we're not that smart, and we acknowledge that we need you, and that there's a lot of things that we don't understand and that we still need to learn And there's probably things in the Bible that we'll never understand because your thoughts are higher than our thoughts and your ways are higher than our ways. And so we look to you and we say, we need you, Jesus. Help us to be bold and humble for you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.